Mother's Day, like I think you can kind of see from up there, can be such a joyful day. Um, in my family, we grew up going to church at this little Baptist a wooden pew, um, and it was my great-grandma and my grandma and my mom and me and my sisters and aunts and cousins, and you could just see this really beautiful legacy of motherhood and womanhood, um, and it was sacrificial, and it was fierce, and it was tender, and it was sassy, um, and I really got to grow up seeing that when God made women, he gave us the ability to create life in our bodies. And in labor, women's bodies break and they usher in new life. And then from their body, they feed their child. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Um, it's just such this beautiful way that God was like, hey, women, I see you. Um, but we also know that womanhood can look different for so many. Um, sometimes Mother's Day is a day of grief, a day of sadness, um, a day of unmet expectations. Um, so today, as we rightly lift up all of the mothers in our midst who are just warriors, um, we want to lift up all women who might feel left out or left over or overlooked on Mother's Day. Um, so as I read this, just please know, this is not just the heart of the Hills Church towards women, um, but this is God's heart because you are seen and you are remembered. So to those who gave birth this year to their very first child, we celebrate with you. And to those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badges of food stains and formula and vomit, we appreciate you. To those who have experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. Forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't want to make this harder than it already is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with their children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance from your children, we will sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who have experienced abuse at the hands of their own mother, we acknowledge your experience and declare that you are an overcomer. To those who have lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are much better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we're sorry that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who are single and don't have children, or who are married and don't have children, and might have been overlooked or devalued by the church, we apologize to you. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, but that dream is not yet to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who placed children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and know that you will always hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprised, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We see you and we remember you this day and every day.
Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Kellen, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today, uh, we are wrapping up our series, uh, God of the Broken. And we've already heard in the last two weeks some really powerful testimonies from Kevin and from Matthew about the ways that they've experienced God's redemption of their own brokenness. And I think that there are many of us who can relate to that narrative, right, where we've messed up and God in his grace has chosen to work in and through us and through our mistakes and our sin and redeem them for his glory. And that's awesome. We see it in the lives of people we know. We've seen it throughout stories in scripture and it's truly amazing. But if our understanding of brokenness is limited to only the brokenness that we cause in ourselves, I think we're missing part of the story, an important part of the story. We've learned over the last two weeks that God has something to say to us in the brokenness of our own making, but what of that which is no fault of our own? For those of us whose brokenness came at the hands of others' poor decisions, of others' sin, or for those of us that are suffering for no apparent reason, it's no one's fault, does the Bible speak to us as well? To answer these questions, we're going to take a look at the book of Genesis, and in particular, the life of a woman who was broken by the sins of slavery, exploitation, and abuse. Her story reveals the character of God and shows us how we as people of God, affected by brokenness, might live in light of that character. So if you would, join me in Genesis chapter 16. It's going to be up on the screen, but there's uh, Bibles there in the pews for you, if you'd like, the pews, the chairs. Um, so we're going to start here in verse 1, and it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So these first four verses are really setting the scene of our story. As readers in a modern context, it's to be expected that this setup sort of uh, probably introduces some questions and maybe even some alarm in our heads as we think about the life and decisions of these founding members of the people of Israel, Abram and Sarai. And if these names don't sound familiar to you, you probably know them by Abraham and Sarah, which are their more popular names that were given to them by God at a later point. So if I accidentally say Abraham and Sarah, I'm talking about the same people, just different versions of the same name. And now, when we look at Abram and Sarai, there's certainly a case to be made that at this point in their lives, they are operating out of their own brokenness. If you're familiar with their story, you know that God disrupted their prosperous, stable lives and compelled them to leave it all behind and settle in a new land, the land of Canaan, where he would establish them as the parents of a great people. And as a couple who were still childless in their 80s, this was an offer that they couldn't refuse. So they got up and went, following this God that they had just met and his promise. And it's difficult to convey the importance of children in this culture, right? Because it's so far removed from our context. But 
In their day, children meant status, both socially and economically. Children were also a part, an important part of religious life because family was the place where religion was most practiced, was most uh, clearly and actively practiced. For childless people, especially for women, childlessness, uh, there was an attached stigma, this common understanding that you were paying for some unconfessed sin, that there was something irreparably broken in you. So you might see then where Abram and Sarai were coming from. 10 whole years after they left their homeland in hopes of a family, God had yet to deliver on his promise to them. They'd given up everything and experienced so many ups and downs already in the last decade, and yet their arms were still empty. Can you imagine the desperation that might start to creep into their hearts? But Sarai's brokenness manifested itself in a plan that reflected the prevailing culture more than the promises of God. Because of the importance of family in this ancient culture, it wasn't uncommon for childless families, especially more wealthy families, to uh, conceive what we would call a surrogate, right? But instead of it being a paid transaction, as it is kind of in our culture, this was usually the function, the default function of the family's female slaves. So when Sarai's desire for a child was not coming to fruition, when the promise of God was slow in arriving, she and Abram abandoned hope in God and instead took matters into their own hands and in so doing caused deep harm to Hagar. So let's turn our attention to her, to Hagar. Author Kim D'Souza identifies some of the ways in which the sins of Abram and Sarai affected Hagar. To be known as someone's slave is heartbreaking, she says. No matter how rich, kind, or God-fearing your owners are, you have no freedom of action, no right, no will. Other scholars point out the ways in which slavery denied Hagar's basic humanity. In the text, they acknowledge that throughout this entire chapter, and you'll, you'll see it as we read, Abram and Sarah don't dignify Hagar with, the, with even calling her name. She's only ever the slave girl to them. But with the hatching of Sarah's plan, Hagar's, it, Hagar is even further dehumanized, graduating from a mere slave girl to a valuable womb. The injustice of commodifying her body, first as a slave and then as a reproductive agent, is profound. Jared Wilson writes, do not let the plain speak of the text fool you. This is a bad thing. Abram and Sarai have exploited their authority over Hagar. They didn't ask her permission in the matter, but treated Hagar not as a person with thoughts and feelings who as a, as a human being is made in the image of God. They treated her like property. It is sexual injustice. Hagar is being exploited here and sinned against greatly. But we'll see as we continue here in verse 4 that Abram and Sarai's plan quickly backfired, as most wicked ones do. Let's, let's go back to the text. In verse 4 it says, When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. Conceiving life changed something in Hagar. Over the years, commentators and preachers have really described Hagar's demeanor at this point as maybe proud or haughty, um, contemptuous is, is the translation that we're reading right now. But if we take a closer look at the original language, we'll find that it's far more generous in its description of her um, than, than modern readers tend to be with her. Uh, Dr. Susan Pugo, she's a professor of Old Testament and of Hebrew, she notes that the word translated with contempt, in Hebrew it's kolal, actually means to be light or slight. So literally, if we're translating that, Sarai seemed trivial, light, inconsequential to Hagar, in contrast to that heavy burden of oppression that had been placed on her. Now, with child, Hagar could no longer be defined by her broken, brokenness alone. She was no longer nameless, she was now mother, responsible for birthing something important into the world. And this reality made her bold enough to see herself as an equal with Sarai. This, as we read, did not go over particularly well. There's a, an expression that says, um, people that are accustomed to privilege, uh, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think that's what Sarah is experiencing here, right? She had so long been in the position of authority over Hagar when Hagar finally felt equal with her. You see in the text in verse five, she said, the wrong that's done to me. What wrong has been done to her at this point? Nothing. Um, and so we see this expression in, in its fullness in Sarai. She's burdened by the brokenness of her infertility, but she was seeing her position of privilege as the wife of a patriarch slowly diminishing. And so she responds in this rage. And we might understand this, right? If we're compassionately reading this, we might be, we might be. Abram's passivity and Sarai's bitterness resulted in even more injustice against Hagar. Adam notes that the word fled here, Barak, is often used of people fleeing from those that are trying to kill them. So Hagar is faced with a choice. Continue to subject herself to humiliation, abuse, and even harm to herself and her unborn child, or escape to the most unforgiving, dangerous place there could be, to the desert. What do you think she chooses? She chooses the desert, that's right. So when you talk about brokenness that's caused by someone else, Hagar is really the epitome of that at this point in the story. She is a runaway slave, pregnant by means of sexual exploitation, physically, and we can probably imagine emotionally abused as well, and now she's wandering in the desert with no shelter, provision, or direction. 
when I um, try to imagine what she might have been feeling, I think there's a, a myriad of things that comes up. She could have been also feeling the bitterness of brokenness, right? Just walking around like cursing Sarah as she's trying to find her way through. That's probably what I would be doing. Um, she might have been shaking with fear, unsure of how she'd survive the harsh desert. I would invite you to also imagine what she might be feeling. And maybe that's easy for you because you're in a wilderness too right now. Read you in a most painful way. Or maybe you've been victimized by assault or abuse. Or maybe the wilderness is actually in you. You have been wandering the dusty deserts of depression and anxiety in your mind. You face the desolation of cancer in your body, or the dryness of grief and loss just won't leave you. In any case, I'm here today to tell you from both my own experience and the story of Hagar that God is near. Let's continue in verse 7 together. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. On the road back to her homeland of Egypt, Hagar meets a figure that the text calls the angel of the Lord. So we're going to camp on this title for just a minute because it's incredibly significant to the stories, but I hope you'll indulge my couple minutes of Bible nerding right here. So stick with me, okay? So most scholars agree that the angel of the Lord here was a physical presence who spoke to Hagar, not uh, a spirit being or anything like that. Someone who uh, Hagar understood to be this physically present person uh, to be God himself rather than a, a spirit being. And they talked with one another as I'm talking to you right now, okay? Here's where it gets a little wild. Now, this is a general consensus among biblical scholars, but I'm going to cite the work of David Guzik, who explains, because the Bible says of God the Father, no one has seen God at any time, and no man has ever seen God in the person of the Father, when God himself is physically present, we understand that it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if God physically appeared and spoke as one person to another in the Old Testament, we understand this as an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation in Bethlehem. So did you catch that? Okay, I'll, I'll give a, just a quick summary. Three persons of the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If the text, if the Bible teaches us that God the Father has never been seen in physical form, that leaves two, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, as his name would suggest, is a spirit being who wouldn't appear in physical form. So that leaves Jesus. But where we are in the chronology of scripture, we are hundreds of years before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. So this is Jesus making a special appearance before he's ever born um, to Hagar. This is the first time in scripture that it's happened, and it only happens another handful of times. But I think it's significant to this story because um, he shows up to a, to a woman, a single mother-to-be, who's embittered, mistreated, and abused. 
And from Hagar's story then, our, our first key idea is this. Jesus visits us in our brokenness. I think it's worth noting that this first appearance of Jesus in the Bible is not to Noah or Enoch or Abram and all these other people that we would consider heroes of faith. It's to a woman. It's to a foreigner. It's to a single mom. It's to um, someone that's abused. And just as Jesus, in unprecedented fashion, came to the side of Hagar, he is near to us in the midst of the wilderness in which we find ourselves. And watch what he does here. First, he calls her by name, the first person in the text to do so. And then he asks her two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? What do you think it must have been like for a slave who only takes orders, who has had no say or no voice in the consequential events of her life to be asked a question? And the questions he asks, they're not just small talk. They're not just these sort of rhetorical inquiries about, you know, what's up? Where are you going? What you doing? He's actually asking her these incisive, deep questions, asking her to reflect on her past and her future. So first he asks, where have you come from? And of course, I'm having all kinds of mic troubles today. Um, he first asks, where have you come from? And of course, the angel of the Lord knows where she's come from. But he's asking her to examine what brought her to that point. God probes into the origin of the problem, the origin of the wound. And for us today, as painful as it might be, healing only comes when we all answer the question, where have we come from? What is driving our brokenness? Let's give it up for Najee. Just coming in, saving the day. And then the second question that he asks is, where are you going? And when we're in a place of brokenness, it's easy to believe that we'll always be there. I think one of the symptoms of brokenness is actually the belief that we have no future. And we see this evidenced in Hagar's answer. She answers only the first question, you'll notice, stating where she's come from and why she's left there. But by only focusing on the past, Hagar confesses that she envisions no future. But by posing this question at all, the Lord is indicating that there is a future. Because when Jesus visits us in our brokenness, he's not content to leave us there. Jesus didn't come to the desert just to hang out with her. He did come to comfort her, but he came to offer her a way forward. Where Hagar saw only desert surrounding her, God saw a way. And he invited her in that way. But his way looks far different than we might expect. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her. Knowing what we do about the God who will later free the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians and so many other stories of liberation throughout the Old and New Testament, the idea that he would send an abused woman back to her oppressors certainly offends our sensibilities. But I think it's important to note here that the application is decidedly not for the abused and victimized to submit themselves to more of the same. That's not the message of the story. But as author Jared Wilson explains, this specific instruction to this specific person does have a general application for all people everywhere. And it's this, trust me. 
Similarly, Nancy Hott says, Hagar is told to sacrifice her own autonomy for the sake of her child. What God wants is that she and her child should be saved. And at that moment, the only way to accomplish that is not in the desert, but by returning to the house of Abraham. To put it another way, God could have allowed Hagar and her unborn child to die in the wilderness, but he specifically intervened so that wouldn't happen. He could have allowed Hagar to live, but to disappear from the life and household of Abram and Sarai, but he didn't allow that either. Instead, he specifically commanded Hagar to go back, to stay in the story. And I think it's important for us to see from Hagar's story that sometimes the way out of brokenness doesn't always look what we might expect it to. But the message of God to Hagar and the message of God to us, I believe, is trust me. I'm writing a magnificent story here, the end of which you don't yet see, but I will provide the vindication and the restoration that you are longing for. Scholar Elizabeth Tracy notes, she won't return defenseless or with the same status. She'll return with strong promises received directly and personally from God. So let's go back to the text again to see what those promises are. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So the Lord follows his command for Hagar to return with three promises, the importance of which cannot be overstated. First is the promise of descendants. Whereas promises of descendants are only otherwise given to Hebrew men, Hagar is exceptional among the matriarchs as both the only foreigner and the only woman to receive a covenant blessing. Second, the messenger of the Lord told Hagar that she would have a son who would live, which I'm sure was not super clear to her at this point, and that he would have a name, Ishmael. Elizabeth Tracy notes that here scholars often shift the focus of their commentaries from Hagar to her son. However, the meaning of the name Ishmael, God hears, forces the focus back to Hagar. God has heard of your afflictions. He's talking about Hagar's situation. But not only is the meaning of Ishmael's name significant, the, name, the fact that he is named before his birth at all is equally significant. While this practice becomes more common later in biblical literature, Ishmael is the first for, for this uh, experience. And the reality is that God doesn't give a name if he doesn't have a plan. So the, the point of this promise is that God had a plan for this boy and his descendants. Finally, the messenger of the Lord informed Hagar what kind of man her son would become. When we read the promise of Ishmael being likened to a wild donkey, a fighter who's at odds with everyone, it really doesn't come across as a compliment um, or, a, or a good blessing. But again, I think we have to look at the original context and the original language to really get to the heart of what's happening here. Um, in Hagar's day, the donkey was an undomesticated animal. It was a wild animal that couldn't be tamed. For a woman his, who has only known a life of slavery, 
hearing that her son would be free, indomitable, and strong would be a precious promise indeed. Ishmael will never be oppressed by slavery. He'll be entirely untamed and lead an unfettered life worthy of his defiant mother. And when we look at the original Hebrew of this promise as well, uh, the word against in the phrase, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's against him, it can just as easily be translated with or upon. So rather than the negative rendering of this hostile adversary, these translations could be understood that Ishmael will be an equal. Unlike his mother, Ishmael will never be afflicted under the hand of another person. That's what this promise is about. So these promises to Hagar bring us to our next key idea, and that's that in Christ, there is purpose in our brokenness. What happened to Hagar is undoubtedly wicked and tragic, but when she meets Jesus, she learns that her brokenness is not the end of the story. Her pain will lead to the liberation of not just her own child, but the freedom of an entire future nation. If you're in the midst of, the, of brokenness right now, please know that God is at work, working to restore and redeem it. Unfortunately, redeeming it doesn't always mean delivering you from it. In fact, for Hagar, we see that the redemption of her brokenness is actually, actually requires her to return to it. But knowing the purpose of her pain made all the difference. Jared Wilson writes, I imagine for Hagar living in a hostile environment, it could be extraordinarily empowering to know God's going to take care of me. It's extremely liberating when you believe that God will handle it, when you believe your reward is in heaven, when you believe God will mete out justice in a satisfactory way, when you believe God can be trusted, when you believe it's all going to get set right in the by and by, you worry less, you stew less, you try to control things less, you try to get revenge less. You can endure great loneliness with confidence and joy when you believe that God is looking after you. This doesn't make pain painless, of course, but it doesn't make it purposeless either. Pain for those who trust Christ is not pointless. It is being stewarded towards something, drafted into a story of glory and wonder and eternal joy. And when we continue in verse 13, we see that this is true for Hagar, that meaning Jesus transforms her. Let's look at her response. Verse 13 says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It's, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. So for the first time since she was enslaved, Hagar was seen as a human being. When Hagar met God in the wilderness, he called her by name saw her, knew of her affliction, and sought to work something extraordinary out of it. And Hagar, in response, does something extraordinary as well. She did something that no one else in the Bible has ever done. She named God. And in her book, Sacred Strangers, Nancy Hott writes, the woman who has a name which no one but God ever uses gives God a name that she knows to be true. It was a daring but intimate moment that we modern readers may miss altogether. For in the ancient Near East, a great significance was placed on knowing the personal name of a God being worshiped. 
It was believed that the name of the god or goddess revealed their divine character, signified their existence, and gave the worshiper access to the deity's power. Hagar's naming of God elevates her to the status of an interpersonal relationship with the divine. What is the significance of this name, though, the God who sees, who, the God who sees me? One of the foremost e experts on Hagar, Phyllis Tribble, describes her as a symbol of the oppressed. She is the faithful maid exploited, the black woman used by the male and abused by the female of the ruling class, the surrogate mother, the resident alien without legal recourse, the other woman, the runaway youth, the religious fleeing from affliction, the pregnant young woman alone, the expelled wife, the divorced mother with child, the shopping bag lady carrying bread and water, the homeless woman, the indigent relying upon handouts from the power structures, the welfare mother, and the self-effacing female whose own identity shrinks in service to others. And yet, God sees her, and God sees each of us. No matter the nature of the wilderness in which you walk, know today that God sees you. And we know from Hagar's story that because God sees us in our brokenness, that he will draw near to comfort us, and he will work it out for our good. Do you believe that God sees you today? Not only does Hagar perform this amazing theological act of naming God, but she shares it with others. She spreads word of the God she has met beside the well, because the text tells us that her experience there becomes so widely known that in time the well is known by all who pass as Bir Lahai Roy, which means spring of the living one who sees me, a memorial to the great mercy and compassion of God. And I think this is an important point for us today, family. And that's that our brokenness should point others to Jesus. This is the whole reason that we wanted to have this God of the Broken series, right? Because we're all broken in many ways, different ways, but we're all mutually convinced that we're in it alone. Humans have been perfecting this art of hiding our brokenness since the Garden of Eden. But the scandal of the gospel is that the broken are welcomed and loved. For our brokenness to point others to Jesus, however, we need to give voice to it, to tell our stories and to create spaces for others to do the same. And even more than sharing the details of our brokenness, sharing the stories, we should testify to the character of God who has seen us, sat with us, and restored us. Alice Connor writes, Christian community at its best is both broken because it's made up of all of us broken, wandering people, and hopeful. Our meal at the table every week, our communion, is our way of feeding each other in the wilderness. It's our way of lighting the darkness. It's our way of seeing God and reminding each other that God sees us too. This chapter, Genesis 16, concludes with the details that Hagar returns to the household of Abram and Sarai and births a son, who in fact is named Ishmael, meaning God hears, just as the angel of the Lord had commanded. Centuries later, another angel would appear to another young woman, announcing another pregnancy and an unborn child's name. This child, though, was to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child would grow to be a man who embodied the nature of God that Hagar names, the God who sees. 
this God-man, Jesus, saw those who were downtrodden, who were oppressed and otherwise marginalized, and healed the wounds of the broken. Equally important, he saw us in our brokenness, in the brokenness of our sin, and whispered words of salvation over us. Like Hagar, who forfeited her autonomy and her innocence in order to birth something greater than herself into the world, this God with us, this Jesus, who was without sin and blame, forfeited his very life, taking on our brokenness and dying on the cross to usher our restoration into the world. And in his resurrection, Jesus gives to those that believe in him an even greater promise than those that he gave to Hagar. Behold, I am with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. So as we leave this place today, may we remember that ours is a God who sees. If you're walking in the wilderness now, know that Jesus is near and that he is working to restore the broken pieces of your life. My prayer for us, both as individuals and as a community, is that we follow the example of Hagar and testify to the goodness of God, even in the midst of our brokenness. This week, a friend of mine described community as when we lay down our torches together to make a bonfire that keeps us all warm. And as I was thinking of this topic of brokenness and how we as a community might approach it, I had this thought that as we as members of a body were to lay down the torches of our brokenness that we believe that we carry alone, we could create a light bright and warm enough to guide those beloved wanderers through the darkest of desert nights back home. So may it be so. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are a God who sees. I thank you that you have not left us alone, but that you come to us in our brokenness and that you take us by the hand and lead us through it, God. For our community today, God, I pray that you would be, you would show your presence, make your presence known to those that feel broken. God, I pray that you would not allow their brokenness to become bitterness, but rather a testimony of your great mercy and compassion. God, as a church, as a community of faith, we ask that you would help us to be a home to the broken. May we... Um, love the broken, hear their stories, God, and point them back to you. Um, we love you, God, and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you died on the cross for us and that you took our brokenness um, and that you made it new. So, God, as we leave today, Lord, may it, let, let us walk hand in hand and with you, looking to you as our leader and our guide through brokenness. And we will praise you for all that you will do. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>